I guess we'll get started by, um, can you introduce yourself and maybe tell everybody how you know us and then ah, yes. let us know how you got into hunting and dogs? Okay. Um, my name is Bobby Kearney and um, I've been involved with the Kleiner Munsterlander Club and previous to that, the Small Munsterlander Club. And um, I've been breeding since uh 2006 was my first litter of puppies and i've had munsterlanders since well my first munsterlander was born in the end of 1999 i got them in 2000 and i know uh gretchen and nate because they bought their first gretchen's munsterlander ebby von gusseisen from me and gusseisen is was my kennel name is my kennel name and previous to that in the other club, my kennel name was Cast Iron, um, which I named because um, I wanted a dog. Our, our breed is a pointing breed, and I wanted strongly built dogs with strong points. And so Cast Iron translates into Goose Eyes. And then my first Munsterlander's name was Goose Eyes and K. Von Krieger uh, from Barb Krieger's K Litter. And I called him Gus. So uh, that's where my kennel name comes from. And uh, nowadays, at least people can pronounce it. Uh, for many years, no one could. So <laughs> um, I, got, I got into, I started hunting. Uh, I came from a hunting family. And my, my grandma and grandpa, my grandma was born in 1894 in Kansas. And although she was quite a lady, she also hunted. And she hunted all with guys because women didn't hunt. And she was evidently a very good shot. And um, when she married my grandpa, he also came from a hunting family. And, uh, and they had two sons, um, both of whom, whom hunted. And I learned to hunt with my dad and my grandpa. I started going out when I was about eight years old. And I think I was bird dogging at that point in time because <laughs> we had we had flushing dogs and they just needed more flushers out there. I think um, <laughs> there was no, I, I can, you know, I can remember, I learned some very important lessons then about um, never complaining because I knew if I ever complained about uh, weather conditions or fatigue or anything like that, I just would get left behind the next time. So I never complained about anything. We had absolutely awful clothes to wear as a little kid. And, you know, I, Nowadays, there's hunting clothes for kids, but there wasn't in those days because I'm talking about 64 years ago <laughs> that I started hunting. Um, so anyway, that's we had hunting dogs. My grandpa actually uh, bred uh, pointers and um, hunting cockers. I just know stories about it because he never he wasn't doing this. He was doing that more when he was younger. And, but I always heard stories about, you know, these dogs and puppies being born and that sort of thing. And uh, my dad, our first dog was an American Water Spaniel, which is a flushing dog and a retrieving dog. And th this is a breed that was developed along the Mississippi River. So we live not very far from the Mississippi River. So this was a dog that was seen much commonly in the 50s and 60s in the Midwest that a lot of people only see in a breed show ring nowadays, but they were a very good hunting dog. And then my dad got Labradors. And so 
we had an accidental litter and I kept a puppy out of that litter. So that was the first dog that I started getting involved in training a little bit. So when I got married um, and uh, out of college and uh, we had our first apartment and I didn't have a dog within six months, I said, well, I'm sorry, we have to buy a house because I have to have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so we bought the house so we could have a dog. And, and, uh, and my labs came first and then I got an American water spaniel. And then that dog in probably about 1996 walked into the field. He was 11 years old and walked right back out. And he said, I'm done hunting. So I had to start looking for another breed. And, um, and I went to uh, Gundog Magazine at the library. Um, and I happened to see an issue. I looked through several issues and I happened to see the Munsterlanders and uh, featured and the, they were on the cover of a magazine. And, um, and so I looked at, they listed some breeders and that was how I found my breeder. And uh, that's the history of it all. So nice. probably more than you want to know. No, no, that's great. So what made you decide to start breeding dogs? Well, probably a very similar thing that a lot of hunters experience. And that, well, I shouldn't say my, I did have a litter of Labradors, which I'm almost, I mean, everything went great. They were a great litter and all that purely accidental that it went that well, mm -hmm. because I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I had a whelping box in the kitchen. Um, the puppies were born. I don't remember much about it. <laughs> I remember, I don't remember having heat in the whelping box or anything like that. They did just fine. Everybody did great. But uh, then, you know, children intervened and all that sort of thing. And so I got, um, after I got Gus, my first Munsterlander, who was, he was a spectacular hunting dog. I mean, he was also not an easy dog, but he was a spectacular, he had huge prey drive. And um, I had to learn training with him and that sort of thing. And it was all new to me because I'd had flushing dogs and not pointing dogs. Right. Although Gus wasn't convinced he was a pointing dog in the beginning. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he ended up being a spectacular hunting dog. And so there were not many of these dogs. Uh, there were very few breeders at that time and, and in the United States. And uh, I just felt like his genetics should should be used because from my breeder you know she indicated to me that he was really spectacular compared to what she had seen and um and so you know he he didn't it wasn't easy to breed him and so i ended up getting a female and um and i bred those two dogs one time and she was a really good dog also. And, um, and that got me into breeding. Um, so I, I only used him one time because I learned that you, know, you shouldn't do a lot of the same breeding over and over again. That's not helpful to uh, establishing genetics and that sort of thing. So uh, that's how I got into it. From what uh, you, you, you participate a lot in KLM GNA. And yeah. so what I know, like my experience with NABDA and what we do with KLM GNA, I just kind of feel this drive to do that stuff. And I sometimes it's you feel like, well, nobody else is going to do it, so I might as well do it. So I, I, it's kind of how I feel sometimes about this stuff. 
So I just want to know, like, what makes you continue to be so involved in the club? I mean, we have a lot of good people and a lot of good support, but it's still usually in every volunteer organization. It ends up being a small group of people doing the lion's share of the work. Like what drives you to be a part of that part? Well, I keep trying not to, but (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't seem to work out. (laughs) No, I, you know, I got involved in, in the other Munsterlander club after I was retired and I, I had time, I retired fairly young. I was like 55 when I retired. And that was the, that was when I had my first litter of puppies. So when I got involved in breeding, I thought it, it, it was really important to get involved in the club. And, um, and so I, I was convinced to run for vice president of that club and I became president. And then um, we were trying to organize with, uh, with Germany to become part of the German club and not everybody was on board with that. And so um, I was approached by Germany to, to help start a new club in North America to be part of the German club, which was very intimidating, I think, at first, because it was just a lot, you know, it was a lot different. And we knew testing would be challenging and all that sort of thing. And it was a little bit of the unknown, but we also recognized that it was really important to have access to German genetics. This is where this breed comes from. I, I love this breed. That That's to begin with. I love this breed. And I think there it's a special breed. I mean, I think everybody thinks they have a special breed, but I've been around other breeds and I just feel like these dogs are a little something special um, because they live easily within a family. And, um, and I think it's worthy of, trying to be involved in a club that uh, is interested in quality breeding. Um, when I was, I was friends of the president of, of the German club that approached me and um, his, his comments about breeding these dogs was that we, we want you, we don't want professional breeders, but we want you to breed professionally. In other words, they don't encourage people to make a living at breeding these dogs. It's probably not even possible based on, on the, the, uh, the regulations, but they want you to do it at a very high level. And to me, that's really impressive. And, and everything that they do is, I think, follows up on that. I mean, I think it's legit. And so it's cool to be part of something like that, I think. Um, you know, trying to help establish these genetics in this country and, um, and helping to educate people on what good breeders are and uh, what good trainers are. You guys are doing a fantastic job with that sort of thing. So, you know, if you, I was lucky enough to have a fantastic, fantastic mentor in teaching me about breeding. And so, it's no fair to keep that to myself. I, if, if we really want to get this, you know, keep this breed a strong breed in this country or make it stronger than it is, um, you have to share that stuff. And, you know, part of the stuff, you know, part of the reason I can't seem to get away from it is that I, um, I'm, I must be the club historian or something. I don't know. (laughs) 
if anybody wonders what happened back then, what did we do? Then they call me. So I just keep staying involved. <laughs> and how, just to give people a sense of how long the club in its current form has been here, when was KLMGNA sort of established, meaning maybe before it was officially recognized all the way? And yeah. then like, when was it a, an official Lons group before, um, for the club? Well, I, um, in, in 2013, in 2011, um, we hosted uh, a, a conference. The other club hosted a conference at where mm -hmm. I live, and the president of the German club came over. So that was when he first approached us about developing a Landis group in North America. And so we proceeded with that for about two years and, until it kind of fell apart, and people you know, there's some people that just didn't like all the regulations and they felt like we were going to be directed too much, uh, that we wouldn't have much independence and that sort of thing. And um, so in 2013, the whole, uh, we had an, an agreement with Germany to try to develop as a Landis group and that fell apart. The board at that time uh, of that club didn't fully support it anymore. And so I resigned and then within a few weeks, I was approached about starting another chapter. So that would have been in the early fall of 2013. In December of 2013, we met at my house, a, a group of people who are still in the leadership of the club. And in terms of trying to put together a, um, a oh, I don't know, I guess just the organization of the club, so we had to apply for um, within the state of Illinois to to establish a club. And then we went to, so there were a bunch of th steps that had to happen. We had to have a certain number of people, which we had a core group of people, about 18 or 19 people who supported the idea. And, um, and we had to build over time to 50 before we could become an official Landis group. That was a, a requirement of the JGHB, actually, I think, that we had to have 50 members. So that took a while. Um, but uh, in 2014, we I had my first KLM litter, um, which was we were able to integrate some of our dogs uh, that we were breeding previously. And um, and we were given our we, we were able to get our kennel licenses, even though we didn't fulfill all the requirements of the current requirements, but they had to do that. We could have never gotten started. And so they're very, Germany was very good about helping us to get established in, in as much as they could. And, um, and so that in 2014, we started, I think we registered three or four, lit, three litters maybe. Mm -hmm. And it went from there. And it was in, I think in 2016 that we were official as a, okay. uh, a as a cl a Landis group uh, that we were you know, totally voted in and uh, and approved so less than 10 years, years from when it was officially yeah yeah okay it's been 10 years since we started less than 10 years since we started organizing got you okay. right and yeah. so so because i think some people that might watch this they're not going to be completely familiar with the german club so the jghb is the club that oversees all well, the testing of mm -hmm. all of the breeds, the member mm -hmm. breeds of that club, which includes 
the Klein Munster Lander, right? The the large Munster. What what do we have? Is there a is there a large Munster Lander club or no? Yeah, there is, I believe. Um, Grosse Munster Lander. Okay. Yeah, and then, and then uh, the long Hars, right? Uh, the Deutsche Hars, the short Hars, and then the Draht Hars, right? The wire right. Hars, Vakelhuns. Mm -hmm. Right, and then are there others too? There are. I I know that the JGHV overseas poodle pointers. Everything is it like all, all of the hunting dogs? So the JGHV overseas and tests all the hunting dogs. It could be um, yaghounds or yeah. I mean I mean terriers. Everything. So, but they all have. There's the pointing dogs. I imagine the flushing dogs. The 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 ground. Hunt the yeah. ground dogs, the dogs right. that go to ground, all those sorts of things. So they they are the ones dealing with the hunting dog clubs. The VDH in Germany oversees all the breeds, uh, all the dog breeds. And then so the KLM club works with the JGHV and the VDH. So it goes like individual breed club, JGHV, VDH, and then is it FCI above that? Is that kind well, of well? FCI, it, it, FCI has to do with the standard and um, other things like it, what they call the fancy breed shows, those sorts of things, kind of sure. like the AKC. So we get FCI pedigrees, but they're issued by our club because our club is the parent club of the breed. Okay. So any in in Germany, my understanding is is that the parent club issues the pedigrees. Gotcha. Yeah. So, but the BDH has regulations over the KLM club, just like you know, and the J and the JGHV works with the KLM club. They kind of they're dependent on each other. Right. You know. So. so I want to talk about selecting dogs for breeding, and I think because we're talking about the German system, the easiest place to start is the requirements that are set by the club for getting a dog certified to be bred. So can you talk about that first? Sure. Um, so we have, we have performance testing requirements, which would be the JGHV tests the VJP, which is the spring puppy test, and the 8ZP, which is the fall puppy test. So when we're talking puppies, we're talking dogs that are generally between one and two years old when they're doing those tests, although they sometimes are younger than one, as you know, because you had a litter that was born in late June. And so when you did the VJP test, um, your puppies were what, uh, nine months old or so? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they have the, re and there's age requirements on those tests. So, um, a, a puppy that is born between January 1st and, uh, September 30th tests the following year. Okay. That would be their spring. And so a, a puppy born in January wouldn't be expected to test in, in the spring or the fall of that year. They're just it's too much of a requirement. So um, that so then a, a puppy that's born from um, October 1st to December 31st doesn't test that they could test that next spring, but they're not required to they can go the following year. So basically, a year and a half later, almost. 
So they're they're the older dogs in this the puppy tests. But once a dog is past those ages, they can't do this test again. Um, so they have to, so the reason for that is because they want to see genetic qualities of these dogs. So when a dog gets much older, and in the second test, in the fall test, there's certainly amount of a certain amount of training, but that's uh, cooperative training ability of a dog is also a genetic trait. So they want to know their trainability, you know, sort of thing. If you have a dog that's really stubborn, they're probably not going to get through that test uh, one way or another. So, so the reason that's the reason for doing these tests at a younger age. There's other tests that can qualify the dogs. Um, uh, you can have a combination of a VJP and a VGP, which a VGP is the utility test, which is a two-day, excuse me, a two-day test. So um, <clears throat> that that's an option. Or you can have uh, if you you can have an HZP with a hair track. So that takes care of the <clears throat> the tracking of a live rabbit that occurs in the VJP in case for some reason they couldn't do that. And then we have a test called an IMPB or A, which also can qualify our dogs. Um, that was developed as an international test to help some of these other countries that don't have the JGHV um, <clears throat> in Europe, basically. But we can use that test also. It's in our regulations. Um, so those are the testing requirements. Um, in, in Germany, you'll see that many dogs that are bred have the VGP also as an additional thing, but it's not a requirement for breeding unless it was combined with the, instead of the, unless it was a substitute for the HCP. So then you have health requirements and health requirements um, would be the hip uh, x-ray, which is done it for us, it's done here, but it, then it's sent to an evaluator in Germany who evaluates the hips in both two ways. Um, they do the HD system, which is um, somewhat subjective. And then they do an HQ, which uses a Norberg angle and it uses a tool to measure the hip, uh, uh, how, how deeply it sits in the socket. So we have two ways that we look at the hips. And, um, and the one that we use for breeding value is the HQ, which there's some science that shows that that's a better predictor of the heritability of, of the hips in, in the offspring. Um, and now, and then we also do a test for ectopic ureter. We were seeing, and this began officially in 2018. So when we were first involved, we didn't do ectopic ureters. Um, and uh, they did it because they were starting to see, this is one of the things that I'd really admire about the German club. They were starting to see some incidents of ectopic ureters in dogs. And what they found, uh, what they were seeing was that male dogs, as an example, did not show uh, that they had an ectopic ureter until they were older. Males can control their urine. You know how they will mark all over the place and every last little drop is saved for that opportunity. And so they have um, kind of a sphincter control um, that that made it look like they didn't have a problem. Then when they their muscles started weakening as they got old, suddenly they started seeing dogs 
that were had been breeding dogs for years started to have ureter problems and they started examining them and find, found out that in fact they were ectopic which meant that the ureters didn't come into the bladder where they should and sometimes were not even in the bladder and um so for a long time if you studied about ectopic ureters you would you would hear that many more females had that problem than males well in fact it's a fairly equal amount um it's just that males don't display it females will tend to have um, problems with uh they might have utis urinary tract infections because females squat low to the ground and they and if their ureters are uh, not in their bladders then there's opportunity for bacteria to get in you know get in there and and cause problems and so um but but they found out that actually is a fairly equal opportunity um sort of a, a genetic defect and so um in about 2015 they started really looking into this and there were a couple of other breeds in in germany and in europe that had similar problems and so um there's a Dr. Hungebuehler in Germany who was the leading expert on uh, on being able, trying to develop an examination <clears throat> that was not super expensive. And so we do ultrasound to examine ureters. And um, and he he is really the leading guy in Europe, and he's the one that looks, we, we get these ultrasounds done in this country, which in the beginning was a big problem because everybody thought, first of all, that it wasn't legit and they didn't know how to do it and they didn't want, vets just didn't want to have to mess around with learning something new like that. Sure. There were some vets who were interested in breeding who were very enthusiastic about it. So anyway, we got into testing for ectopic ureters and uh, at one time we thought there was about a 7% uh, number of dogs that had ureters that were either ectopic or not in a normal position and now uh, it's much less than that because uh, by doing this testing and eliminating dogs from breeding um, and only breeding dogs with normal ureters or ureters that at least come into the bladder in in a reasonable location we've really eliminated a lot of that problem but i think we'll have to stay with it for a while uh, because um, those genetics lurk and and uh and they can surface again if we're not if we're not cautious about it so i really admire the club for saying look we have this problem let's not let it get worse than it is and let's not hide it let's take care of it and 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 they've done a great job with that so that's kind of typical of this club so what about um in addition to the things that are required by the club other genetic considerations for breeding so like we can talk about your current dog hank and decisions you made uh about him and then also mm -hmm. i know that there was um discussions about epilepsy and other things like that at certain times so those yeah. are can you talk can you speak to some of that stuff and like who gets to make the call about those things within this club right well there's um within the breeding regulations there's a uh, an appendix on epilepsy talking about how um this sort of issue should be dealt with we actually have a very small incidence of epilepsy occurring in our breed um like it, what is considered uh healthy so 
the statistics in Germany say about two per thousand puppies uh, might have uh, might develop epilepsy. And um, and so we have in our we have a, a breeding program called Dog Base, which is um, it, it was developed in Germany. It covers a lot of breeds, although none of the other JGH breeds that I know of are involved with Dog Base. But we give breeding values to different things. Many of them are hunting traits, and but some of them are health issues. So we have um, we we track uh, homozygous free, you know, whether or not dogs are carriers of epilepsy, what risk they have of being a carrier, what what are is the probability that they're what we call homozygous free, meaning that they're not a carrier, or how close to being free they are. Uh, for as an example, Yana, when I uh, per, I purchased her in Germany as an adult dog uh, for a breeding dog as foundation stock for us. She, her uh, value for epilepsy was 0.99 something homozygous free, which meant that she had less than 1% chance of being even a carrier of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. and, and so we track that in all the dogs in, in dog base. And um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because we can see in many, many, almost every pedigree, you can identify dogs that were carriers, but at the time, like uh, when they were being bred, they weren't known to be carriers. It, it happens, it might track back to them several generations. It might be that three or four generations down the line, a dog shows up with epilepsy and then they have to try to backtrack and figure out where did that come from because to, to uh, our understanding of epilepsy in our breed is that both dogs have to be carriers of epilepsy to produce epileptic puppies and in that case only like one in uh, only 25 percent of them would have epilepsy um, so three-quarters of the breed they'd all be carriers um, or you can have one parent be a carrier unknown to you and the other one not you never produce epilepsy and i had experience with this with my dogs prior to my with my small munsterlanders prior to my klms where uh, i started to produce epilepsy and i we had no idea that 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 was in the line but we could eventually backtrack it and figure out where it where it came from okay. and it so all these dogs down generations were carriers and all of a sudden two carriers got bred right. and, and and that's the the awful thing about epilepsy is it can hide for many generations and so we're lucky that we have this this dog-based program so sometimes people look at our pedigree and say well that dog look at that dog is it you know four generations back that dog's a carrier and that dog's a carrier yeah but they when they were being bred they weren't known as carriers you know, and and they wouldn't have been bred had they been known as carriers. So it's not, it, it, you know, it, it's just it's one of those things. And but I I had a line of dogs that I had to just start over again. Um, I had a, uh, a an excellent female that was a prize one utility dog in Navda, 
and she had had one litter and then I found out that her grandmother was a carrier and then I found out that her mother I mean after I saw so I I took her out of my breeding program as soon as I knew her grandmother was a carrier but eventually the grandmother's daughter was a carrier that female of mine had 50 offspring um and she produced two or three dog puppies with that had epilepsy but I didn't know that I mean, you don't know, you didn't find that out until after she was all done breeding. I didn't, she was done breeding before I found out that her mother was a carrier because her mother produced epilepsy in a litter that was her last litter. And, and Beans had already had several litters by then. So it, you know, it's a insidious sort of thing, but sure. you just have to do the right thing, even though she, you know, Lizzie would have been a wonderful breeding dog and ended up that her father had epilepsy and, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Fortunately, nothing out of her litter uh, had epilepsy. So that was very lucky. But, you know, she just you just can't keep breeding something like that. You can't stick your head in the sand. Right. And, then, and so you kept a puppy from your last litter and then yeah. you decided not to breed him because he had something called base narrow canines, I think you call right. it. Right. And that was a yeah. thing that you mentioned that he would he would grow out of given the way that it was or maybe he did grow out of it or could or something like that but you decided to still not breed him anyway i think right. you also well, said, something about his tail you didn't like um, well his, his tail is uh is not correct but that would not i don't think that he would have been eliminated i'll put him in a breed show probably just to to have it checked out he has really long hair on his tail so when a breed show judge, if they do it properly, checks the tail, they feel where the end of the tail is, not where the end of the hair is. Mm -hmm. And I could see when he was born that his tail was not normal. It was just, there was just a little knob on the end of it. It's like it didn't have the last joint or two. Mm -hmm. And I recognized right away that it wasn't right. Um, but if you looked at him today, I'd say most people wouldn't know it. Yeah. Uh, because now his, his hair, is probably six inches long on his tail at least <laughs> and so you add that and, and he looks pretty good the base narrow canines are i didn't know much about base narrow canines although i had as a i was the breed warden and so i would um i would check out the litters that were being born born in this country and i did see a litter with a puppy with base narrow canines and i went to try to close this puppy's mouth to be able to look at the bite in the front to check out the scissors bite because that's one of the things you're supposed to check out in, in puppies this age. And uh, he couldn't close his mouth. And the reason being is that his, his canines were going right into the gum line, into the roof of his mouth and it hurt. And so I, I, I made a note, this, this puppy had base narrow canines. So what I've learned since, especially since I didn't, I never had seen it again after that, but when Hank came along um, and I could see that he had the same condition, um, he, he outgrew it. So if you, if, so what I've learned about it is that if the condition is mild, it's not a severe case. Let's say a real severe case would maybe have the canines going up into the soft palate of the, of the mouth. That would be really inside and they're probably not going to outgrow that. His, were just going into the gum line. He had holes in his gum line. Um, and, and he, the, he, how he coped with it is he carried things around in his mouth all the time. 
So closed <laughs> a lot. So it didn't hurt. Um, and it didn't seem to really bother him. So when his regular canines came in, um, they came in normally. And so um, I started studying up on it because the head of the breeding commission, who's a friend of mine in Germany, said he purchased a puppy in Denmark and the breeder told him that his dog would outgrow the base narrow canines. Well, the dog didn't outgrow it. And, and so sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But in Hank's case, even though he outgrew it, and if I put him in a breed show, he has a perfect bite um, that he would qualify for breeding. But mm -hmm. it's not right because in the studying that I did, the research shows that even the dogs, even the parents of the dogs that produce base narrow canines probably shouldn't be bred. Um, and so I, you know, I just chose to eliminate him from the possibility of breeding um, okay. because it's, it, you know, why pass that on? As far as the short tail was concerned, I happened to know that his father had a, had a, a shorter tail because I was the breed show judge for that dog. And I, I made note of it and it wasn't bad. It was probably about, you know, an inch too short. I think Hanks is probably about that much too short. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's, an indication of incorrect genetics regarding the tail or regarding the bite. And if you allow that stuff to persist, um, it's going to be someone else's problem. The short tail is to me probably not as big a deal. That's cosmetic. Um, but the base narrow canines, you send a puppy home with, with base narrow canines and most vets are going to say, well, you need to pull those canines. And, and so you're sending a puppy home that's going to have a big bill with a vet and you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you're going to pull the puppy teeth and that's what they're going to recommend. And then you don't know what the dog is going to deal with. They might have to file off or pull the canines. Well, for a retrieving breed, that's not a good idea. And so the best thing is to just, you know, there's other dogs. There are other dogs in that litter that are better breeding prospects. That's the way I looked at it. So in a, but in, in any closed gene pool, right. And if you're dealing with a pure breed of dog, you are dealing with a finite number of candidates. Are there certain times when you sort of have to make a judgment call and it's like, there's certain stuff that like, it, it bothers me a little bit, but I wouldn't worry about it too much. Like maybe the tail thing, if that was the only issue, right. It, exactly. I, I look at it in terms of, how serious a health issue is it going to be for for the dog? So let's say um, hips. You know, bad hips for a hunting dog are not a good thing. You know, and or ectopic ureters. I had someone call me that had a puppy from the other club. This was several years ago. And his puppy had ectopic ureter. And he didn't know what to do. His breeder didn't want to give him any help with it or anything. And uh, and so I said, well, you need to go talk to your the breeding commission of that club and talk to them about this because you know the breeder should do something for you. And um, and so he said, well, he said I'm going to euthanize the dog. I can't have a dog that's supposed to be a house dog that is 
you know, leaking in the house all the time. So I think of ectopic ureter as a bad thing mm -hmm. um, because people will euthanize a dog over an ectopic ureter. There are surgeries, it's thousands of dollars to do the surgery to try to repair it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I think of that as a bad one. Epilepsy is, is not a good thing at all. So I've had, I had one of my puppies euthanized I didn't have it done, but the owner, as as an adult, when this dog developed it, which was at about two years old, euthanized the dog because he didn't want to deal with it. Some dogs, it just depends on the individual, what they're going to do with things like that. So to me, things that cripple a dog or, uh, uh, you know, cause a dog big problems, uh, uh, cataracts, you know, or glaucoma in dogs. I don't, we don't have a big issue that, with that, but we have a little bit of that. Um, can can cause some big problems, big surgeries and things like that. Cosmetic things, you know, like the eye color is a little light. Well, that's purely cosmetic. That's just a matter of, you know, what a what a dog, uh, the aura a dog presents. A dark eye is a friendly eye, and that's why we like dark eyes in our dogs. Yeah. In some breeds, people don't care about that. I love a dark eye in a dog. Our training um, mentor talks, she does not like dogs with yellow eyes, like the yeah. light colored eyes. It's menacing. It's, it's, yeah. it's a menacing eye to people. And, and, and we actually, it can be disqualified in our dogs mm -hmm. uh, if they're too yellow. Yeah. So uh, you see it yeah. in the drawtars a good bit. Yeah, you do. Right? You see more. Yeah. 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 So, what about, um, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Um, so when you are working on a pairing, um between dogs can you speak to what you're looking for there um in terms of is it you're trying to complement things are you trying to temper some stuff sometimes like what what's your what's your thought process excuse me thought process when you are um selecting dogs to be paired to be bred well you're gonna i think you're gonna start by looking at that possible compatibility of pedigrees um, and you have to kind of know the dogs and the pedigrees that's helpful um, which is i think the farther we get along as a club the easier that's going to be we have to depend a lot on like i depended a lot on working with the head of the breeding commission in germany when i was advising people on on pairings um because they can they know all these dogs and they and if they don't know the dog they know somebody that does know the dog and they can get all the the lowdown on the dog they also you know and i'm getting better at looking at pedigrees and saying okay we you know if this dog is two two times in the pedigree and is far enough back so the coefficient of inbreeding isn't too high we track coefficient of inbreeding um when we put a pairing together um, but we can bring good dogs forward. We don't want to bring dogs that are problematic forward in a pedigree by doubling up on them. So we, we look at things like that. Um, from, from a perspective of uh, temperament and physical qualities, um, I look at trying to, I look at my dog's hunting qualities. I look at their the temperament quality of the dog. I look at what are the shortcomings of my dog. So for instance, if I took my female Kate, I would say 
she ended up being strong in the water, but as a, as a younger testing dog, she wasn't very strong in the water. So when I wanted to pair her with a stud dog, I wanted to find a male that had a, a strong testing score in the water. Like I like to have an 11 in the water and people aren't going to know what this means, but it's a JDB score in the water that is a, a, above and beyond. Barring extenuating circumstances, that's, that's the best score you can get. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and in like, I, so I bred Kate twice with both times with dogs with 11 in water. And in fact, it, it produced puppies that were all water lovers. Yeah. And, and so that, I mean, and that may not happen that way every time, but it happened to, and that's in that case. Kate, on the other hand, is a really strong pointing dog and, um, and, a, and a highly cooperative dog. I didn't want to lose that, but I could take a little more risk in putting her with a, a dog that maybe wasn't quite as strong in pointing. Or if I wanted to really solidify the pointing, I'd, I'd go to a dog that, you know, certainly at least a 10 in pointing. Um, but I could take a little more risk there. And, and you know, breeding is <laughs> a little bit of a crapshoot. Um, you know, you're, you try to have a plan it doesn't always work, you know, but it's better than having no plan at all. And so I look at, okay, look at my dog's strong qualities, try not to lose those, but try to improve on my dog's weaknesses. So the first thing a person has to do is to be able to recognize what their dog's strengths and weaknesses are and admit to it, you know, and, <laughs> and that's hard thing for some people to be objective about their dog, which you know, you'll find out as time goes on as breeders. Um, you know, we we have something called kennel blindness, where yeah. everybody thinks their dog is the perfect dog. Well, yeah. you have to be able to say, you know, like uh, Kate is also kind of a noisy dog. Um, she's she's spur loud, and I I would be less inclined to put her to a dog that's spur loud, because I, I think they can be too they can get too noisy too. Okay. I strung that way. And spur loud for people listening is uh, when a dog is loud on a, on scent while they're tracking in, in our club, they test this on rabbits. So that means the dog is tracking hot scent and is barking Bark. while they're doing it, but they don't even have to see the rabbit where a lot of dogs are, are uh, sight loud instead. So they're not barking until they actually see the rabbit. And I find that helpful because it helps me gauge when I'm hunting the distance away from the game the dog is. So when I'm shooting rabbits on the ground in front of a dog that's chasing them, I know where the dog is because I can hear him and I can see the rabbit eventually, obviously, if I'm taking a shot at it. And then it also, in my experience, every dog that I've seen that is sight loud on rabbits has been sight loud on ducks during duck search as well. And it's helpful for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And, and Yana is, will do the same thing if she's chasing pheasants in a, if they're running around in a cattail marsh. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, they, she gets loud there, but, but she's sight loud. Our, our dogs are required to be loud. They're not allowed to be bred unless they're loud. Yeah. So they have to pass, you know, we go back all the way back to what we were first talking about. They have to, uh, they have to pass the VJP 
and the HZP, and they have to be marked lout. They have to also um, uh, be in a breed show where uh, we're evaluating their qualities compared to the standard. Yeah. And if they have any qualities that are disqualifying qualities, uh, for instance, a tail that's half the length of what it should be, that would disqualify a dog from breeding or, I mean, or an a incorrect bite that we, we allow for uh, an extra uh, or minus two, one or two premolars. Uh, but that's the only bite deviation our breed allows. So um, we have that. And then the dogs have to be HDA or B in hips or HD or EUA or B in ureters. And um, so you have to put all that together to uh, to be allowed to breed our dogs, which is is a, a tall order. And that's you why know. being a commercial breeder in these clubs, you're talking about a year to two years of testing. You're talking about, I, I feel like it was a couple thousand dollars, right, for the right. medical stuff, like to get the exams done. Well, uh, not that bad, but. Well, here I well, want maybe, two better, dogs maybe better now, but yeah, so that and then and then it's just there's a lot to you have to right. you know you have to kind of reach all those milestones before you can do it, and that also means that you could put a lot of time into a dog, and then they end up not being breedable because you can't even test for some of this stuff until they're they reach a certain age, right? And then a test entry is way cheaper than the ultrasounds and x-rays are. So it's like, do the performance stuff first and then, you know, you worry about the other parts. Yeah, it's kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Like <laughs> I did, I did Kate's ureter and hips before. Um, well, I think we did the VJP, but I did, I did them. Um, no, actually I did that, that all before she did any testing. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, you're going to probably spend as much training for testing as you are for those tests. So it's kind of six of one half dozen of another, which yeah. you do first, um, you know? So, but the thing about training is you need to do that for, to train your dog to hunt anyway. Yeah. So. And I, I uh, what, what did you say earlier that, I, oh, you were talking about being kennel blind or kind of just people thinking that oh, they have the best dog. Yeah, I and kind I of jumped around a little here. What was, well, what was, what was really helpful for me was getting out and hunting with a lot of people. And then, like, I thought my dogs were awesome. Like, my first hunting dog, Anya, I thought she was incredible. And she she's a very capable dog. But then you go out and hunt with a bunch of other people and you're like, oh, my dog, even if she's book smart, she definitely doesn't handle these wild birds the way that, you know, yeah. these other folks do. And so like, it's a separate education there. And then you see different breeds that are just like when people say uh, uh, that like certain versatile breeds of dogs, they're, they, they do all the retrieving stuff as, as well as a lab and all of the pointing stuff as well as an English pointer. And I kind of feel like that's just not in my experience always true. I mean, there's always stronger and weaker dogs there, but you are making compromises with these things. And at a certain point, with some of that stuff, it's like, I don't want my dog doing the stuff that some of those specialists do anyway, because they're supposed to be able to do everything. So yeah. anyway, my point was just that, you know, I think I, I was, it was, it was humbling to spend time with other people that have really nice dogs. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I love my dogs and I, my dogs are good, but they're, they're not the best dogs I've ever seen for sure. You know? Right. Well, and the other thing that you'll learn over time is there are, there are training dogs 
And that so there are some dogs that are really good at testing and aren't that good at hunting. And then there are dogs who are really good at hunting and are maybe not that good at testing, which could have something to do with their owner. Like my dogs, I don't think we're ever spectacular at testing <laughs> because I'm probably not the world's most disciplined trainer and, but good enough to get by, but I have good hunting dogs. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, um, I, the most important thing in my mind is the good hunting dog because people buy these dogs to have a good hunting dog. And if a, if a dog is tested and isn't a good hunting dog, then I don't, I, you know, and they have high test scores to me, that isn't as good a dog. And, and when I, it's not as good a dog for breeding as a dog who is a good hunting dog. Um, because that's what we have them for. And I, there have been times when I've talked to uh, my friend, Dr. Westfall in Germany um, about a specific dog. And I look at his test scores and he said, and he'll say to me, yeah, but this dog isn't a good hunting dog. So it's like, even though the test scores are high, that's not a reason to breed that dog. It, it, we, we need to put together the whole package. So we have to be objective about what your dog is. You know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of your dog? You know, right. And, right. Then, and then try to do the best you can to produce the best, to try to improve the breed. That's what I try to think of doing in every breeding when I was breeding the dogs is, can I improve on what I have? Or if I have something really spectacular, don't lose it, you know, by, by doing this breeding. Do a breeding that's, that at least can maintain that, that qual those qualities. Right. Well, what criteria uh, should a puppy buyer look for in a breeder? I know mm. what I look for. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> well, I think um, I think to begin with, you want a breeder who I mean, I think a breeder. A puppy buyer should want a breeder who pays attention to health genetics because if you don't pay attention to health genetics and what you're trying to breed that way no matter how good your dog can perform um, if it's not a healthy dog you haven't got anything you know so health genetics are important uh, it should be a person who is serious about breeding who who works with their puppies in their upbringing and does exposes the puppies to different things um and provides a healthy environment for the puppies uh that's not easy for a person to find out but probably one of the best ways to find things out like that is to talk to other people who have bought puppies from that breeder if hopefully they've you know it, it could be their first litter everybody has to start somewhere but anyway um it should be someone who is involved in a breed club and uh who takes that seriously who takes training seriously um and who can therefore be helpful to the puppy buyer uh and understand something about canine behavior so that when you if you do run into some issues with your puppy you can rely on your breeder you know it, i think you should also be looking for a breeder who is communicates well is uh responds quickly to you um if if I 
contacted a breeder and I didn't hear anything from them for a long time, I don't know that I would go any farther than that because um, they should be interested in someone who's interested in their puppies. And, um, and beyond that, if you are able to talk to other people who have bought puppies from that breeder, um, you know, how is their relationship with that breeder? You know, sort of thing. Try to find those things out. A, a, a breeder should be willing to give you names of people who have bought puppies from them that you could talk to them. So um, I think those are, you know, I think paying attention to temperament of puppies that you're producing and, and the dogs that you're breeding is, is really important because this breed is not a breed that you go stick in a kennel. Most people buy this breed because they, they want these dogs to live with them in the home. And most people nowadays have their hunting dogs in the home. So you want a breeder who, who cares about breeding a dog that's easy to live with, a puppy that's easy to live with. Yeah. I think. What uh, were you looking for in a breeder? Huh. <laughs> All of that. No, I mean, it, you know, it was tough because we, there weren't many KLMs around for us to meet in person. We met Larry's dog, which is one of your dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, and because where we are in Maryland, you know, there's nobody's right. local, really. Larry was local in four right. hours a day. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, I was familiar with the JGHV system because Nate had his Drathar. And so I, I was, I, I already had a lot of buy into the, the testing, the, te the breeding regulations, the mm -hmm. testing system. Um, so, so personally, I wasn't like in need of convincing, like, or trying to find out if these were going to be good dogs. I know they were going to be good dogs. Right. Um, but, um, I, it, it was, it was, I really valued that you were so involved with the club. Oh, right. Okay. And that you had just been involved for a long time. I'm like, you don't stay involved that way for a long time. It's like, you're kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, so that was, I mean, that was a huge, you know, selling point. Um, and for me, you know, the distance didn't matter. I didn't mind, you know, we didn't mind driving to Iowa despite there being like a closer breeder at the time. Um, but uh, I was. Um, she drove, she drove, she drove zero miles of that trip anyway, by the way. She's she was busy eating candy. She's a killing navigator. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I really appreciated was that you picked the puppies for your puppy buyers. Oh, that's that's the next thing we want to talk about okay. is is some breeders let the people pick the dog and then other breeders they do the pairings themselves and so when a puppy buyer is looking for a puppy what are expectations that they should have of the puppy and then also explain why you you pick the particular puppy that mm. the people go home with well let me start with picking the puppy because that's the easiest one to answer. So when I first started breeding these dogs, I let my puppy buyers pick their puppy and by the order in which they committed to buying a puppy. So they couldn't pick their puppy until, uh, so, so then when it was time for the puppies to go home, which was anytime after eight weeks, 
I had to have them come in the order that they that they were to get, to be able to pick their puppy. So that's how it worked. But what I found was it was so disappointing to me how people picked their puppies. It would be generally speaking the markings on the dog. And which is to me the least important thing about the dog. And so that frustrated me a great deal and people I mean people would just it was just it kind of blew me away <laughs> but <laughs> that somebody would pick a dog for that reason when you know i would sit there and tell them about you know the qualities of the different puppies and all that sort of thing and but they wanted the one that had you know particular patches of brown on them in a certain way <laughs> i'm like oh my god so that was when i decided no you're not picking the puppies anymore I, I i it became then i started doing a puppy questionnaire and um you know to find out about the family that were or the people that are buying the puppy and um and then i also had a a, a thing that they filled out regarding their what they did hunting and all that sort of thing so i started putting the puppies together with the people based on what the hunting needs were, what the family needs were, and that sort of thing. And oddly enough, it seemed like it always worked out that I had, it, it's kind of like you had the right puppy for the right person. And people would would come, you know, after I started doing it that way, they'd say, God, you just picked me the perfect puppy, you know, sort of thing. And, but you have to spend a lot of time looking at your puppies and understanding them and what their qualities are. And, you know, like, um, you know, someone who says, I want my dog to hunt within 50 yards of me. Well, first of all, not many Monsterlanders are going to necessarily do that. You can train any dog to do that, but why have a pointer then? Um, but I'm not going to give them the most um, energetic of all the puppies if, if that's what their expectation is for their dog. I might give them one that has just kind of a naturally calmer nature. And, um, and and also if I had a family with a, a bunch of small kids, you know, I'm not going to give them a rambunctious puppy because life's going to be rambunctious enough for that puppy going into a household with small children. So then, you know, I might want a, a calmer dog. Whereas if I have a person, uh, say a, a bachelor who, you know, lives by himself and, and hunts 40 days out of the year, I'm going to give him, you know, a, a pretty hard charging dog and I know that, you know, the environment that that dog's going to live in is not going to be as raucous as, as a family full of young kids. So it starts to, you know, work together that way. And it, it was, it worked out well that way. And so when people would say, well, I want to pick my own puppy, I'd say, well, then you have to find a different breeder because it's not going to happen. And I, I said, I'm going to spend eight weeks looking at these puppies and, and spending many hours a day with them you're going to see the puppy for an hour and you're going to try to decide within that hour, which puppy fits your needs the best. I said, in that hour, that puppy might be tired or that my puppy might've just woken up from a nap and be full of energy and all different things or, you know, all different things can play into how that puppy acts in that hour that may not be typical of that puppy. So you might be choosing your puppy on a person on what you think is their personality that isn't even their personality so it um that was you know why i just put an end to that <laughs> and, and, 
And the truth is, I never had anybody say, "I'm I, I'm sorry, I don't want a puppy from you because you you're because you won't let me pick my puppy." Right. When I explain to them why I'm the one picking the puppy, they totally get it. Right. Yeah, we it did with, in, in the pet dog stuff that we do. We have people show up sometimes, and they come with a dog. They'll have a Roddy or a pit bull or a German shepherd or a cattle dog or something like that. And then when they talk to me about what they want for their family pet, it's what the they describe is like they want, they wanted a fat lab is really right. what they want. Yeah, it's the wrong breed. You picked the wrong yeah. breed. And that's, there's yeah. a, so there's a, there's a podcast I've been listening to a lot. It's a, a, a guy that does a lot of detection stuff. I think uh, his name's Cameron Ford and, he said it on a couple of his podcasts. It's not a paint job, whether you're talking about the way the dog looks overall, like the breed, or even what you're talking right. about, like people being concerned about the markings and 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 things like that. Is like there's so many other things that are more important than that. Right. And that kind of I think for a breeder would be a red flag about that person, like that right. that that's the depth of thought that you put into this. Was right. I like those markings better than those markings? Kind sometimes, of, sometimes yeah. people just need education on the matter. Yeah, you know, they okay. just need to understand better. Even though it is, it does sound silly to you. Uh, they just don't had never thought about it the way yeah. you know that they maybe should have. Well, and so you know, it's an opportunity guess, to educate people. <laughs> that's fair. And I guess I what I've also heard from other, I think I've read it in some hunting dog books and I think I've heard it on some hunting dog podcasts that you should just cover your eyes and reach in and grab a puppy because they're all equally likely to be good. And I feel like that's kind of too much the other direction. Right. I, I agree with that because I think they, there are varying personalities within a litter and those personalities can affect um, how, how they are interacting in your family or in training or any of those sorts of things. Right. And some people are wanting a more high-powered dog, and some people are not. And so, fortunately, within a litter, you get a variety of that, I think, yeah. Yeah. generally. So what was the other question? I forgot that I got going on this. Uh, I, I think you answered it. I think that If was... not, well, then we both forgot, so it's okay. We'll okay, move on. Perfect. We didn't have to. But you nailed, it. You, nailed it. Huh? you nailed it picking Ebby for me. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. And I think Gretchen did a good job with – the the a litter from ebby putting those dogs with the right people well i think you know gretchen showed from the get-go as far as being she's a she's a serious breeder even though this was her very first litter she did everything um above and beyond that you could ask a breeder to do and and the same thing with your follow-up with your people and all that sort of thing people should be lucky to get a, a puppy from you I tried. Oh. I was trying. Thanks. <laughs> it matters a lot to us. So the uh, yeah. I think the the last thing I think we had on this list of stuff to talk about was, I think sometimes when people are looking at buying one of these dogs and they look at the requirements the breeders have of them, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's testing or just some of the stuff that's in the contract, right? That kind of stuff. W what? what would you say about those sorts of things in terms of what you think is reasonable that a breeder asks of their puppy buyers versus what might be a bit, I don't know, like a red flag. You're, they're being too controlling. They kind of maybe seem like they want to just keep all the puppies for themselves and they're looking for excuses to like not give them up. 
I don't know. Like you just hear wild stuff sometimes that people write into contracts and things. Yeah. Well, I, you know, for me, I, I maybe, I maybe didn't have as strong of the, I've had requirements and that people can't buy one of my puppies and then go and take it and breed it outside of our club. Because right. the whole purpose of this breed club is to establish these genetics and to build a foundation of dogs and um, and 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 that so that's that's a thing that could turn some people off and has turned some people off, you know. But then that's okay. I don't mind that. Um, I didn't always say I didn't say to people that you must test your dogs. Uh, I took a kind of a different approach to that. I, I highly encourage testing. And, um, and then what I do, what I always did with people is try to sell them on, on what the whole testing program is about and help, help them kind of buy into it, into what I call our KLM culture. And, um, and so most times that worked out pretty well. As an example, the litter that you got Abby from, there were eight puppies and seven of them went through the at least the VJP and, and several, um, uh, the HCP also. So we qualified out of that litter, two dogs for breeding. Um, Aota in Germany, she, she went over to Germany. Um, and she would have qualified except she had a ureter issue uh it was it would have qualified her for breeding but um but he didn't want to take the chance of breeding right. her so um you know my and kate's f litter uh, i think six of the dogs got through all the testing um seven of them tested i think well i think they all got through all the testing um and so i don't you don't really need all, you need a couple of dogs. You would like to see a couple, don't need, but you would like to see a couple of the dogs in each litter qualify for breeding. So what I always tried to do is focus on trying to identify what I thought were the puppies with the best potential and put them with the buyers that had the best potential to train and test and be interested in breeding. And beyond that, I was, equally interested in the dogs having a good hunting home and having good opportunities for hunting because that's first and foremost what they're supposed to be is hunting dogs and so i could uh, i guess rationalize in my mind that if they were going to a good hunting home even if they didn't get tested um uh, i could live with that as long as some of the dogs within the litter uh were tested so that that was that's kind of the way I did it with people. So I didn't so much as say you have to do this or I won't sell you a puppy, but I, I tried to just uh, help them understand the value of it all. And then they tended to want to do it. Right. So I had actually pretty high percentage of puppies that were tested and qualified for breeding enough from my line, to be honest. You know. So you talked earlier about uh, a breeder being responsive, being a really important thing to you. And so things like support for after the puppies go home and then for training, problematic behaviors when those come up, and then even in a rare circumstance that a dog needs to be rehomed, 
Like, what do you think the breeder's role is in all of those things? Well, I think, um, I think a breeder has a responsibility, especially if they're expecting people to test their dogs, to help them. I mean, you know, when puppies go, let's say, to Alaska or to far reaches of the country, uh, you know, I, it, it, you guys have done a wonderful job of having a group of puppies near you that you can help work with from your litter and such. Um, my puppies were going all over the country. And partly because there were a lot of breeders in the Midwest. And so there was a lot of more competition in, in selling puppies. And so, you know, your, your puppies might go all different places. So at the very least, what you have to be willing to do is help them find people who can help them. I mean, you can do so much on the phone with people and helping them with ideas about training and, uh, or problems with behavior. You know, it's not like we tend to have a huge number of problems with behavior. Most of the problems, I think, emanate more from the owner than the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can probably attest to that. Um, but then that's all part of the education of, of the owner, too, is helping them understand, you know, how, how this needs to happen. And um, But at least putting them in touch with people who can help them. So if I have you know, I had a guy in my last litter in Idaho um, who's, you know, that's a long ways away from here. And I, I was able to get him in touch with people. I, I, I was, I tried to get him in touch with people. He had people he wanted to train with uh, from a pointing organization, but I want, tried to get him into a versatile dog people, but you can only kind of lead the pup, right. lead the person to the water. You can't make him drink, you know, lead the horse to water. You can't make him drink sort of thing. So at least be, be able to get them in communication with people near them who can help them. And I think that's the, the very least. And if you can, you know, there, there are some opportunities to help with training hands-on, but it, because of our organization being all over the place, it's more like, okay, now I know somebody in that state that maybe could help you and this is how to get in touch with them and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think you have that responsibility. Rehoming, um, you know, one of the reasons that I retired from breeding is that when you have a litter of puppies, what, I was 70 years old when I had my last litter of puppies. I have to realize that I, those puppies will be around until I'm 85. And within that period of time, I have to be willing to help out when necessary. And so you can only do that for so long, <laughs> you know, so it's not, it's not reasonable to be a really old breeder <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you have to realize those puppies are going to live 14, 15 years. And, and it's all the, you know, I've got 16, no, 15 litters of puppies that I've had. So that's a lot of puppies that um, some of them are now gone because it started you know, over 17 years ago. Um, but there's still a lot of them alive that I'm, I still have to be able to, and I still get contacts from people, you know, all of a sudden that, you know, I haven't heard from for a long time. And some people stay in regular contact. So it's a lot of, a lot of people to deal with and a lot of, you know, um, but rehoming, I think it is in my contract. I always said I had the first, if you can't keep your puppy, your dog, whatever age they are, I have the first option to take that puppy back 
And then it would be my responsibility to either keep the puppy or rehome it. Right. Um, you know, and if someone, um, if someone was going to rehome the puppy, I had to be contacted to, uh, to say, yeah, that's okay. That'll be okay for that puppy to go to that home sort of thing. So yeah. I, you know, you're, you're responsible for those puppies for their whole life. So that's, it's a serious thing. And if, if a breeder doesn't feel that way, I would run away from that breeder. Right. 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 <laughs> you cool. know. Well, I, I think that was all the questions that we had. I uh I thank you so much for taking some time out to talk to us. Um I think maybe seven people will watch this, but that's okay. I'm sure it's it was, seven, those seven it was, will get something out of long, it. Didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the trend now though. It's good. Long form stuff is making a recovery. There are there are a lot of people that appreciate long, detailed conversations instead of just the short attention span yeah. stuff that we're all used to seeing now. Yeah. Um, well, it'd be good even for the KLM club because, you know, one of the things that I think is that I just wanted to mention about breeding that I think is really important. I had a, a wonderful mentor who taught me way more than I ever thought I would know about breeding or dogs or anything. And I feel it's my responsibility to then share with with breeders that have that have dogs of mine to help mentor them in in becoming breeders, and and that's the sort of a thing that is really important uh, to help develop good breeders in our club, and uh, and I know you'll do the same with your puppy buyers. One of the things that I've found in the time that we've spent in dogs is that. Um, there's a lot of uh, youthful enthusiasm, uh, but they're not always the most well-informed people. And so one of the things that I've appreciated and enjoyed about um, just my time in dogs in general is getting to learn from people who um, have spent their entire life doing this stuff. And so like I get to benefit from an amount of... Uh, wisdom that i don't know that i'm going to accrue in in my lifetime so whether that's our training mentor linda or you or some of these folks in our navda chapter like i think my social circle that i spend the most time with like my my probably honestly my closest friends all of them are older than my parents um and that's been seriously and that's and that's been uh it's been wonderful and I think, I, you know, we have some people that maybe watch this stuff that uh, we're going to come in from different avenues. And I, I just, there, there's a lot of people that I think, people our age and younger, they spend a lot of time on social media and looking at places like that. And sometimes the people that you see the most or that talk the most are not necessarily the people that know the most. And so like finding people that have spent a life like dedicated to this kind of stuff is really, really important. And I just think we're really thankful to have found a lot of those people. Um, well, I think you've sought it out and, you know, you guys have gotten, I got a late start to all of this. Really. I started hunting as a very young person and, yeah. and all that sort of thing, but I got a very late start to breeding. You guys are getting a much earlier start to it. <laughs> and so you guys will be those gray-haired wonders, you know, at some point in time, and we'll have the opportunity to share all your knowledge. Can't because wait. 
<laughs> so it's yeah I, I mean i never in a million years thought i'd know what i know about the klm or dog breeding or i didn't go into it thinking that but um but you know it's it's i was lucky to be surrounded by good people and and i've know learned a lot from a lot of people and and uh, you guys are kind of doing the same thing so that's very cool yeah well i hope we get to see you some this fall um hunting i think we're trying to plan a september trip straight from the hcp if we can cool um yeah. and then from the, the michigan hcp or the yeah yeah and then we're, we're gonna come we're gonna come crash um we're probably going to come crash at your place in January again. I might, um, that might be okay. <laughs> or quail or something. That's it. Yeah, that'll be cool. No, it's uh, that'll be fun. Thank you, Bobby, so more much. More of New Mexico. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate Anything it. else? Parting words? You feel like we covered it all? Uh, I think we covered more than I thought we would. All right. Nice. <laughs> Thank you and so I, much. I said more than you wanted me to say. No, 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 this is great. This is great. Thank you, Bobby. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye. -bye.